today on the Entrepreneur Circle. So we go in with our new strategy and we walk into the room and I take the $100 bill and I slam it on the table and I say, here's a $100 bill. If anyone asks us a question about the category that we can't answer or makes a double entendre that we haven't heard before or says something that makes us blush, this $100 is yours. So let's actually get to discussion of the business opportunity so that you can then make an informed decision as to whether or not this is an opportunity that you're interested in. Hey there, folks. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Entrepreneur Circle podcast, where we inspire you by talking to entrepreneurs and business owners about mindset, goals, vision, tips and strategies on how to crush life and business. I am your host, Eric Cabral, real estate investor and a creative. I've been in the creative industry for over 20 years, got my start in New York City as a junior art director and made my way up the corporate ladder to become the creative director at the number one pharma company in the world. That was until I decided to hang up my corporate hat and start my own creative agency called On Air Brands, where we broadcast your brand and your message using social media and live stream events. Hit us up at info at onairbrands.com to learn more. Also, like, subscribe, and share this podcast on social. We greatly appreciate you for it. And also, don't hesitate to send us any feedback that you may have because we always love, love, love hearing from you. Before we jump into the show, I'd like to share what some of our sponsors, partners, and friends of the show have to offer you. Hello, this is Josh McCowan, CEO of Viva May Hospitality and the beautiful Renault Resort Winery. I have to tell you, the secret's out, and the secret is On Air Brands. On Air Brands Creative Agency, which specializes in launching podcasts, transforming live events into live streaming events, and social media marketing soup to nuts. On Air Brands has changed the game. There'll never be a day from here forward when you and I and our companies don't need to be on the air. Every brand needs to be on the air, but so few know that. So it's great to work with a group that are ahead of the curve and to find a company that has been built on the core foundation of the future of marketing. If you're ready to broadcast your brand like they've done for my brands, take the next step and make a change that can transform your business, reach out to On Air Brands today. That's onairbrands.com. Yes, onairbrands.com. Hey, folks. On today's episode, we have Rachel Braun Sherl, who is a business builder, a marketing strategist, a public speaker, and a best selling author. So, some of the things that she's done in her career is she's She's a co-founder for Spark Solutions for Growth, which is a strategic consultancy agency that focuses on building and growing brands for Fortune 500 companies. She's also the best-selling author for a book called Orgasmic Leadership, and she's also a public speaker and a board member and advisor for several institutions. So uh, Rachel's story is absolutely amazing. She's had so many different experiences, and one of the things that I loved uh, was her story about raising capital 
and going to Silicon Valley. And that was the little snippet that you heard at the beginning of the show, uh, which is my favorite part of the story because it, it's so funny to imagine how that all went down. So, folks, you're in for a treat today, Rachel Braun Sherl, and I'll talk to you after the show. I am so eternally grateful to have Rachel Braun Sherl on the Entrepreneur Circle. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this again. Truly appreciate it and you. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, um, we are here and it's a new year and we're excited and I'm kind of brushing the cobwebs off <laughs> and uh, yeah, got to get back into the groove. Um, so yeah, I think we, we were chatting a little bit a few minutes ago and I do want to jump right into your origin story or what I, I'm a, I'm a geek. So I like to call it, you know, comic book issue number one, you know, what's uh -huh. your, your superhero origin. If you want to start from there. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. So um, I don't know how far you want me to go back, but very quickly, when I graduated from college, I thought I was going to run a division of Johnson & Johnson. And the reason I say that is because I think it's interesting that I said I was going to run a division as opposed to I was going to run the company. In any case, um, I have spent a lot of my career working with and for um, Johnson & Johnson and related companies. Uh, so I started working for a a public relations firm right out of college and my first client was Johnson & Johnson. Then I went to business school and I went to a division of Johnson & Johnson. Mm -hmm. And then I went to a consulting company and my primary clients were Johnson & Johnson <laughs> and operating companies. And so for you know most of the last two decades where I've been doing strategy consulting, really focusing on revenue growth, so much of my work and the relationships that that you need to build a business were formed originally through the relationships with people that I had at J&J, &J, some going back as far as 20 years. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to dial the um, way back machine even, even more so. So, um, you know, you were working in corporate America. You and I are cut from the same cloth, by the way. Uh, 20 years, uh, uh, roughly, for me in pharma as well. Um, funny, though, I've, I, I never really worked for J&J. &J, everyone else but J&J. Um, and I've worked for J&J &J and a bunch of other companies. I'm sure we could, if we spent a few minutes, yeah. we could find some overlap and people. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. I already saw overlap, you know, when I was doing a little research on you, you know, I, I've worked on, you know, cause I'm in the creative space. So I, I helped to build creative in-house creative agencies, you know, within Bristol Myers and sharing plow and, 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 um, Novartis and um, some of the the brands. Obviously, I was I was touching a lot of the brands in that space that you're you know that you own basically. Um, you know, like it was like Implanon and Orgalutron and NuvaRing and mm -hmm. yeah, all those things. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I wanted I wanted to talk about like your early days because you were sort of an entrepreneur within a company and building business and growing business. And so, what was the spark that? got you to sort of take that leap, you know, that, that, you know, Hey, you know, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm just going to start my own business. Well, it's interesting. I call myself an accidental entrepreneur, although now at this point in my career, I can't picture it any other way. When I had my first child, I was working for a consulting company and my clients were J and J businesses. And I was stationed on a project that had me traveling to Belgium once a month for a week at a time. And which is, you know, that, those were the demands of the job. So that's what I was going to be doing. But it became pretty clear to me 
um, about seven months into that, and you know, seven or eight trips later, that if they were paying me, you know, tens of millions of dollars, which let me tell you, they were not in 1995, <laughs> um, that it didn't seem worth it. So the risk and the return seemed out of whack. And really, it was at that point that I said, I really would like some more control over my financial future, right. how I work and with whom I work and how I earn my living. And that was really what the motivation was uh, to become an entrepreneur. It was as simple as that, that I wanted to have a little bit, um, a lot more say uh, as to how I worked, you know, what kind of projects I worked on and the kind of people that I worked with. And one of the sort of mantras that I've had that I've kept, um, and I've had the same business partner for 20 years, is I work with people I like on, on content that I like. And if one of them has to slide, then it's going to be the content. Because working with people uh, who I like and with whom I share the same values is critically important. And I just want to clarify, that does not mean that we have to be best friends. Mm -hmm. What it means is, you know, I can't tolerate stealing, lying, and cheating. And, you know, lots of people hear that and say, well, who does that in business? And unfortunately, you know, there are plenty of people who manage their lives, their professional lives, um, in a way that's inconsistent with me. So we really do work for people we like on content that we like. And again, if one slides, it's I'd rather work with people who I respect. And again, that's very different than people who I want to, you know, be best friends with. I remember I was on a board and the, and the, <clears throat> one of the main board, board members used to say, we should be looking for people that we wanted to have a beer with. Right. And I always felt like that wasn't the right metric for me. I wanted to work with people who I could understand the values that were informing their decisions mm. so that I knew how they felt about fundamental things. And again, that doesn't mean we had to agree on everything. It just means they had to be authentic. They had to be honest. They had to be um, forthcoming. And that's very different than necessarily someone I would want to go out to dinner with or have a beer with. Right. It doesn't have to be the same person. What are some of the tools that you use to determine, you know, because like a lot of people put on a really good face when you first meet them, second, third time meetings, um, you know, what are some of the things and, and, and what do you do if someone isn't who they turn out to be and you're already working with them? Like, how does that all hash out for you? You know, as a consultant, when I'm running companies, um, there's one answer. And when I'm a consultant, there's another. So when you're a consultant, and you're learning things that you didn't know, you could then choose to not do any more work. But yeah. because, uh, you know, follow-up work, I don't ever mean that you would um, not complete your responsibilities. So for me, um, it's really, what is the next decision that you make? So I can accept that when I learn something that's different than what I anticipated, you know, my job is helping companies grow. And I do that by building relationships and having people hire me to help them figure out how to do that. Okay. So there's, you know, there, there's, I can't think of a scenario um, unless someone outright stole from us or from their coworkers during the project where I would say, I'm not going to finish this. But I would say, you know, if that opportunity comes up again, I'm not sure that's the best fit for us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm with you and I, and I'm totally hundred <clears> percent 
in agreement with, you know, building relationships, which is key, um, you know, just to be happy in your everyday um, interactions with people. Um, you know, a, a, a question I do have when it comes to, especially with startups, because I know you work with startups as well, aside yeah. from your Fortune 500 companies. Um, startups are often in a position where they have to say yes to mostly, if not everything, because, um, you know, they need the cash flow, they need, they need capital to, to grow. And, 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 you know, my, my creative agency is somewhat in, in, in its early infancy stages. And we have to say yes, when sometimes my gut says to say no, um, because the client, like you said, has a different type of mindset, um, different sort of rules that they live by. Uh, what would you say to folks like it, that, that are in that type of situation? My feeling is you know, we often talk about making decisions from your gut. And my feeling is you can make decisions from your gut when you have some experience to back up your gut. Mm -hmm. So if your gut is telling you that this is not a good match, you're generally right. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first thing. And there is a trade-off all the time. Often the, the, the projects you take on that you have this sinking feeling um, in your stomach that it, or in your brain that is not right, I often find that you are right in the end. So I think they wound up costing you in ways um, that you might not anticipate. So I, I really do believe in, if you don't think if there's something that just doesn't fit with a relationship, then you walk away. And I, I get that that has financial ramifications, but I, one of the other things I talk a lot about with um, clients, especially startups, is that you have to make choices. And one choice is what are the things you focus on to grow your business? And in my experience, when you have a partner um, or a relationship that's toxic, it does take you away from the areas of focus that you're interested in pursuing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, I, I don't even mean to say that that's, you know, that that always works. Sometimes you literally, it's the difference between paying the light bill and not. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you have a bad feeling um, about an experience, and I don't mean this if you're 20, I don't generally say this to people who are 25 or 26, but if you have 10, 15, 20, 25 years of experience, yeah. your gut has, has, you've demonstrated that your gut can steer you in the right direction. So I right. usually listen. Right, right. Yeah, that's great. Good advice. I love that. Um, I was, I was watching some of your stuff on online, you know, YouTube and all of your content. And um, I love the story. And if you could tell the audience a bit about uh, um, your experience as far as raising capital, like there are <laughs> a lot of companies out there. I, I, it's, it's great. It's a great story. Um, and yeah, you have full reign to to get as deep as you want, because it's a great, you know, it's, it's really just interesting to hear. Because uh, a lot of people, especially on this show, have not really spoken about that aspect of building a business. And I don't think that a lot of people experience it. You know, like for me, I, I'm, I'm using my own capital and using, you know, what I get from, from as clients pay. So, you know, you did something really cool and I wanted to share that with everyone. So I have to set the, st the stage a little bit. So mm -hmm. I the first time I was running a female sexual health company was in 2008. And in 2008, Shearson Lehman was going bankrupt. The bottoms were falling out of uh, the financial markets all around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and things really just weren't going that well um, 
in the business world and in the financial world. And that's when my business partner and I head to Silicon Valley as two women, you know, talking about a business that was related to vaginas. Mm -hmm. So we joke, it was, you know, the triple threat. We had all these things working against us. First of all, we were women and the statistics suggest that that decreases your chances of raising money. Mm -hmm. The second is they considered us first time entrepreneurs because we had never raised money before and they sort of minimized the fact that we had been running a successful business for decades at that point. Mm-hmm. And the third is that we were talking about a, a business and a category and body parts that generally make lots of people very uncomfortable, and that was <laughs> female sexual arousal, desire, and satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I tell this story, and, you know, you have to keep your sense of humor. And I, yeah. it's, it's funnier to me as the years pass, but we did, there was something quite comical about it. Uh, while we were going through it. So we, again, it's 2008, it's September. We head out to Silicon Valley and we have appointments to meet with 13 different investors, Mm -hmm. 13 different um, venture capital companies um, in two days. And for those folks who haven't been to Silicon Valley, you know, at that time, what that meant is there are a bunch of nondescript buildings, one next to the other, all different venture capital funds. And they each believe they have a distinct, discernible investment thesis, and they have a different approach to working with investors. Well, as an entrepreneur, I can tell you that at some point, probably somewhere between three and four um, uh, meetings, they start to blend. And their investment theses don't seem that distinct, and the questions you're answering aren't that different. And it's almost as if they get, you know, the same office furniture moves from place to place and the same same peppy receptionist moves from place to place so that it becomes just sort of this blur. Mm -hmm. So in any case, we walk into the first meeting and remember that our product was a product that improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women of all ages and life stages. And it was topically applied, um, no drug-drug interactions, clinically proven, had a lot of good things Um, going for it. And we go into the first meeting and we get the question that we expect, which is, how is this different than Viagra? Mm -hmm. So, you know, not to, not wanting to bore them immediately, we try to give a very high level answer that the male sexual response system works like a hydraulic pump. So the fact that Viagra is a vasodilator and increases the blood flow and the hydraulic pump works, and it's a much simpler response system. And when you look at the woman um, or female sexual response cycle, there's a much more complex, interconnected set of systems Mm -hmm. at play that need to be touched um, in order to change a woman's experience. So it's physiological, it's psychological, it's social, it's contextual, it's behavioral, it's emotional. Uh, So the actual problem or the actual set of symptoms that you're trying to get a response from or systems is much more complicated. So we were trying to explain that Viagra is not a terribly good analogy just because the problems are so different and the response systems are so different. Right. Can I point out too that, uh, and, and I want to ask you if this, if you can confirm, 99.9% of these VC companies were mostly male, I imagine, right? So you're talking to yeah. a room, right, of, of guys <laughs> who yeah. don't get it, right? They, they're, yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to sort of clarify that picture. Well, and I should say that. So I was... Um, my business partner and I were, you know, what you would call that we were in our mid forties and and mid fifties at the time. And most of the people in the room were, you know, white men between, I don't know, let's say 35 and and 45. And there was the rare woman in the room. Um, And 
so, you know, you start with that and there was a lot, and then that will become very important as I proceed in the yeah. story. Mm -hmm. When you're trying to raise money, the most fundamental thing you need from the first meeting is a second meeting. Mm -hmm. So what you're really looking for is that there's some interest, that there that there's someone who's going to stand up and say, "This, I'm going to lead this, I'm going to do the due diligence. So the worst thing that you can get is silence. I thought that was the worst thing you could get. <laughs> then I decided that the actual worst thing you get is giggles and laughs. Mm -hmm. So we had people, you know, men in the room elbowing each other and, right. you, know, tell, you know, whispering stories about their, you know, their exploits as you know younger men and it really was almost hard to believe i yeah. use the expression it felt like being in a seventh grade locker room but then i felt like that was insulting to seventh graders <laughs> so in any case you know we leave this meeting there were no questions no strategic questions it was very clear there was very little follow-up because they hadn't asked any of the questions to understand the business the business risk um what are the things that kept us up at night? What were some of the fundamental principles of our growth strategy? Mm -hmm. And all the things that I would want to know if I was going to invest in someone who was running a business. Right. You know, learning more about our management style and what our experience has been. So we go, we leave the first one and clearly we're not, you know, getting a nickel. And we go into the second meeting and the question was, um, what does this do for men? And we had a clinical study that was a, a pharmaceutical design clinical study, meaning that we had a double blind, placebo controlled, meaning people didn't know if they were getting the active ingredient or the placebo. And when you're doing a clinical study, what you're really looking for is can you attribute the change in experience to the active ingredient? Or is it statistically something that could just happen by chance? Yeah. So we had this very interesting clinical study that showed that the product improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women. Um, the, the study was done with just heterosexual couples. Um, doesn't mean it didn't work in other situations, but that was the, the focus of the research. And it was really about the woman. So we get a question in the second meeting and they said, well, what does it do for him? And so we gave our scientific answer, which was that you know, the study was really focused on her endpoints and her experiences of arousal, desire, and satisfaction, which you can measure on validated scales. And it really wasn't focused on his satisfaction, although anecdotally, here are some of the things that we heard. Mm -hmm. Primarily that her improved experience or her improved response made him feel better, either because he felt like a more... Um, able partner or he got satisfaction out of her satisfaction, but that the product itself did not have a physiological impact on him uh, the same way it did for the women because the, the vaginal tissue is very different than the penile tissue. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you might imagine, you know, we're going on and on taking ourselves <laughs> very seriously because mm -hmm. we think of ourselves as business people. The same thing happens. Mm -hmm. There's laughing, there's giggling, there's no strategic questions. There, it, it really didn't feel like a professional business meeting. And I had gone to Stanford Business School, which is sort of the, you know, the, the, the home of Silicon Valley. So lots of these people either knew me or people that I worked with. So it wasn't like I was coming in um, as this you know, mysterious entity. But the response had nothing to do with what we were presenting or what our business plan was or what our strategy was and very much to do with this content that clearly made them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So my business partner, Mary, and I say you know, to each other, we have 11 more meetings. 
you know, at the rate we're going, it's going to feel much more like a prison sentence than a business opportunity. <laughs> and, you know, just as an aside, I am a credit card person, which means I do everything on credit cards. I track everything. I rarely have cash in my wallet. And I could tell you what I spent in any category in any month of any year for the past 20 years. Not that anyone's <laughs> interested, but I could. That's how I sort of manage my spending. And something made me look in my wallet that day and I had a $100 bill. Mm-hmm. Now, Mary and I laugh. You know, I don't know if it was dumb luck or divine intervention, but this gave us an idea. So we huddle and we decide we're going to try something different. You know, the meetings can't go worse because, as I said, if you're not getting any of the questions and you're not having any of the conversation, it's very unlikely that you're going to get a second meeting, which is when the real work is going to start. Mm-hmm. So we huddle for a few minutes and we say, you know, let's just go for it. It can't work less well than the last two that we did. So let's see what happens. So we go in with our new strategy and we walk into the room and I take the $100 bill and I slam it on the table and I say, here's a $100 bill. Because these people, I think, like to think of themselves as, you know, betters and risk takers. I said, here's a $100 bill. If anyone asks us a question about the category that we can't answer or makes a double entendre that um, we haven't heard before, (laughs) Or says something that makes us blush. (laughs) This $100 is yours. Love it. And then I paused and I said, she likes it more. She wants to have it more. Now let's talk about the business model. Mm -hmm. And finally, the silence was a silence that we had their attention. Because we had said in that moment, we're serious. We're not embarrassed. We're not embarrassable. This might make you uncomfortable. It doesn't make us uncomfortable. Have at it. We can take whatever you bring on. Mm -hmm. So let's actually get to discussion of the business opportunity so that you can then make an informed decision as to whether or not this is an opportunity that you're interested in. Brilliant. And it was at that moment, as I say, I'd written a, a, a book this year called Orgasmic Leadership, Profiting from the Coming Surge in Women's Sexual Health and Wellness. Mm-hmm. It was in that moment that I was the first time I even had this idea of what later became called orgasmic leadership, where we were going to be straight, we were going to be no nonsense, we were going to sort of um, talk about the elephant in the room and make it so that we were had the opportunity to discuss a business opportunity. Mm-hmm. And listen, that, you know, that doesn't mean that we got over the hurdles that people were comfortable saying the word vagina or thinking about the word vagina or thinking about women's arousal or satisfaction or desire. You know, that's still something that we grapple with today. And that's more of a societal systemic problem that we have. Um, but really focusing on making sure we were going to be part of the conversation mm-hmm. to change this. When you look at the numbers, um, 31% of men have erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And that's a multi-billion dollar business. Oh, yeah. Forget the fact that half the people using it don't have erectile dysfunction and they're using it for performance enhancement, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as long as it's fine for them. 40%, 43% of women have sexual concerns and difficulties at some point in their lives. That's a 40% greater number. And yet the size of that market, even today, is still dramatically smaller. Mm-hmm. When you include everything, when you include devices, when you include products, when you include pharmaceuticals, when you include counseling, anything you want to include, the market is still dramatically smaller than it is for um, dealing with erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And part of that is that we really don't have an accepted comfortable language 
on female arousal. So Viagra's been in our world and Cialis and Levitra, but um, Viagra was the first for over 20 years. And so we've been schooled with a vocabulary that's about bigger, longer, stronger mm-hmm. and for our erections. And that does not translate um, in my experience working with women's businesses for you know decades mm-hmm. in terms of how women think about sex. Right. So you asked that, you said I could go as long as I yeah. want. Unfortunately, I took you seriously. No, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a great story and, um, you know, an experience that most have never, you know, they don't even really feature it in TV or movies often, but it is an experience that um, is unique. And, you know, the way you approached it and the way you sort of huddled and figured out <laughs> a way quickly to, um, you know, pivot and 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 get these folks to sit on the edge of their seat rather than snicker and giggle and you know be schoolboys during the meetings um i like that you understood your audience and you identified something that you know they all potentially have in common you know like taking risks and being betting type of people um you know it was it was it was a great tactic and strategy that you used there um you know and it worked and that was great but yeah. what i would really say is the takeaway is it is very hard to raise money. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the statistics, it's harder for people of color, it's harder for women in terms of the likelihood that they will get capital. What that means, and what I tell people trying to raise money, and when I'm working with companies, what I say is, that just means your story has to be better. Mm. That doesn't mean it's an excuse, and that doesn't mean you have to curl up in a ball because it's hard. What it means is you have to make your offering and your business and your ask even more compelling than maybe someone else might have to. Right. And and I imagine, especially with what you were pushing out there and what you were trying to build, um, there wasn't much competition, was there? I mean, were a lot of other people trying to put a product out there that was similar? Well, at that time, no. Previously, there had been literally dozens of pharmaceutical programs. Our Our product was sold... Um, direct to consumer, so you didn't need a prescription. Mm-hmm. But there had been dozens of pharmaceutical programs in development that had all ceased because, as I said, based on how complex the female sexual response cycle is, mm-hmm. they were having difficulty showing efficacy with these products. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a period where there were dozens, and then it went back to essentially none. And now, over the last 10 years, what we've um, thankfully seen is an explosion, not of pharmaceuticals. Those are still few and far between, but of products, devices, services that deal with, respond to some aspect of female sexual and reproductive health. Mm. So when I talk about the work that I do, it's essentially from menstruation to menopause and everything in between. So Mm. that includes fertility, infertility, disease prevention, birth control, um, hot flashes, right. you know, menstruation, incontinence, it's all of those things. And what is really exciting for me and why I'm still so motivated in this space is that there are so many amazing people building amazing companies um, in these related spaces. Mm-hmm. Specifically around the area of arousal, desire, and satisfaction, uh, those tend to be more complicated if you're looking for a pharmaceutical solution, um, but there are plenty of devices and there are new um, sex toy businesses that are, where the products are designed by women, intended for women. So there are a lot of different solutions now that didn't exist before um, 
in their current iteration. And, and so many of these entrepreneurs are actively, aggressively, and importantly contributing to the conversation around female sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's funny because um, we are roughly, um, what, about a half hour into our, our, our conversation, and you have not mentioned your coin phrase yet. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, you keep saying entrepreneur. I'm like, come on, Rachel, just say the word because it's, I love it. It's great. And it really owns the space. Um, you know. Well, I have to give a shout out to, uh, to a journalist, Abby Ellen, who coined the phrase, Mm-hmm. And uh, when I asked her if she was ever going to use it, she said no. And I said, can I trademark it? And she said yes. So it's vagrepreneur. So yeah. I trademarked the word vagrepreneur, which is really meant to refer to a person in the business of female sexual and reproductive health. Right. And what I like about it is it does get people's attention. It does make you think. It's an easy way to describe uh, the space that I'm in. So many people in the space, and I've interviewed dozens um, and worked with you know, dozens as clients or people that I interviewed for the book, um, many of them get into the space because they had a personal experience mm-hmm. that they had a problem that they didn't see a solution for. And so instead of sitting around and complaining, they said, oh, wait, this is a problem. Let me create a solution. And oh, by the way, I think this is a problem for a lot of other people. So I think I'm going to build a business around it. Right. Which I just think is so fascinating. It's not the average person who says, oh, I have a problem. I think I'm going to build a business. Uh, so the kinds of people yeah. building businesses in this space are quite unique. And, and one of the examples, just to give you one example, I'm working with a company um, where a woman had noticed that she was having issues with dryness, vaginal dryness as she was entering menopause. And her next sentence is, so I hired a PhD and did 300 interviews with women of the same age. Oh, wow. You know, lots of people say, oh, I have vaginal dryness. I'm in menopause. Now what? They don't hire a PhD and interview 300 people. (laughs) So there's something quite interesting about the people in this space. And one of the ideas that comes out in the book are sort of some of the common characteristics I see, not only about the people starting these companies, Mm -hmm. and I obviously in the book talk about my journey as well in this space, um, the kinds of people starting these companies and the kinds of companies that they're starting. Right. And so, as I said, you know, there's just one woman, an amazing woman by the name of Polly Rodriguez, who's in the book and who's a pioneer in the field and is this dynamic entrepreneur um, in her early 30s, uh, had spent her early career working for brand names. At the age of 20, she was diagnosed with colorectal cancer, stage Mm -hmm. four, the treatment for which rendered her infertile and immediately menopausal. Mm -hmm. And while her doctors had counseled her on uh, the infertility piece, no one had prepared her for what it meant to be a 20-year-old or Mm 21-year-old in menopause. Mm -hmm. And the different things your body might now need or that your body wasn't naturally doing for itself. And so it was out of that experience that she created a company called Unbound, Mm -hmm. which basically is a marketplace of products that they create and build and deliver direct to consumer to enhance your experience across the range of activities, the range of sexual activities. Mm-hmm. Um, the language is different. It's, it's accessible. It's funny. It's friendly. It's feminine. It's an entirely different approach than lots of other companies um, historically have tried. So she's an interesting example of someone who said, okay, I have this problem. I'm going to come up with a solution. And oh, by the way, here's a business. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing that I see in terms of trends of the people in this space is 
a new approach to social impact. So obviously many of these companies are focused on women and they have some focus or perspective on either donating or contributing to the world um, in some way. Mm-hmm. But it has gone way beyond, you know, buy a pair of shoes, give a pair of shoes. And the, the example I always like to highlight is this amazing entrepreneur by the name of Suhani Jalada. Now, Suhani uh, graduated from my alma mater. I went to Duke undergrad and I happened to read about her um, in the alumni magazine. And I reached out to her because we were in the same space and I was in the process of working on the book. And I said, you know, would you be interested in uh, getting to know each other and, and participating in a structured interview? So her backstory is she grew up in India and in, in fairly relative privilege, but her parents were very involved in um, government. And so she was quite aware of the challenges that people, especially women, had living in the slums of Mumbai. So she knew that she wanted to do something in that space. And, you know, there's a huge challenge with sanitation and the ability to go to the bathroom and mm-hmm. dispose of waste and privacy. And Suhani said, well, that's a huge problem. You know, that might be too big. Let me start with a smaller piece. Let me start with menstrual protection. And it might be news to a lot of listeners that in developing countries, young girls and women, young women can miss between three and seven days a week of school or work or whatever the case may be um, because they don't have the appropriate product to manage their menstrual period. Okay. So what Suhani did is she went into the environment and she spent time with women in the slums of Mumbai. And what she came up with was a business where she taught women how to make menstrual products. So rather than having, you know, big box companies from, you know, big consumer products companies from around the world sending their products to India for which there was not appropriate sanitation, she, Suhani came up with a way of making it with materials that they could easily work with so that they create their own products. Wow. But she didn't stop there. So not only did she give them solutions so they could go out and go to school or go to work, but she also taught them how to sell to other people in their community. <laughs> so in addition to having a menstrual product solution, which was the fundamental piece, she's now given them an economic engine to potentially break the cycle wow. uh, of poverty that they were in so that they could potentially finish school or that they could potentially get a job. And it, it, it's just a miraculous story. In 2016, Suhani was... Um, acknowledged and recognized by Glamour Magazine as the college student of the year. Mm. And at that event, she met a woman who was relatively famous and soon to become more so um, by the name of Meghan Markle, who took a particular interest in what Suhani was doing and, and who was very involved in social causes around the world and had even gone to visit Suhani's um, company and her manufacturing setup that she had in India. So then when the actress Meghan Markle was about to become um, a duchess when she married Prince Harry, at the time of the wedding, they made an announcement. They said, in lieu of gifts, please donate to one of these seven organizations for which we have a particular personal interest, Mm -hmm. one of whom was the one that Suhani had created. And the part I love about the story is it was so serendipitous that she happened to meet Meghan, that Meghan, before she was a duchess, went to see the factory. And then my favorite part of the story is that um, Suhani and some of her coworkers were invited to the royal wedding and they went, (laughs) 
which wow. is just a great happy ending to the story. And Suhani is now, um, in addition to having the company, pursuing her, her PhD at Stanford. So wow. when I say that these are extraordinary people, their stories are so different and so meaningful and, and inspiring. And that's what keeps me in this space, even though there are so many challenges and it is harder to raise money and it's harder to get access to media channels, including Facebook and, and, and many others. But there's so much forward momentum and so much forward progress. And to the extent that I can in any way be part of that conversation of moving these opportunities and these companies forward, you know, that's what excites me every day about working. Yeah, it's 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 really an amazing thing um, that you've put together as far as your book and the stories and putting your story out there. I'm curious how, how you know how, how much you know uh, feedback and more stories you're getting as a result of putting the book out there. And you know, are there plans to put a put a follow up? You know, <laughs> write a follow up. I mean, because I'm, I'm sure you're getting more and more interesting stories, and then even the people that you know are gaining more success and 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 want and, and the readers want to hear what's happened what's going to happen next you know yeah so it's funny i had completed over 3 dozen interviews for the book mm -hmm. um and only half of them uh were actually included in the book so i always have joked that if someone other than my mom bought the book that i already have <laughs> um a version 2 yeah. but you know so it's sort of it's it's in the works but awesome. more importantly, the stories and the experiences and the challenges and the victories, um, yeah. those are the things that, that come all the time. And mm -hmm. every day I hear another story about either a person having an experience buying a product or a person having an experience trying to um, build their company or just the silly things that people say. So... You know, one of the jokes in the industry, uh, for especially the, the folks who are making condoms, is everyone always says that the condoms aren't big enough mm -hmm. yeah. for them. Right. So one woman working at one of these companies, um, a company highlighted in the book by the name of Sustain, uh, the woman running the company, Mika, said, you know, her mom has a good sense of humor and she was working with her in the business. And so her mother took a condom and put six lemons in it. <laughs> And sent the picture to somebody and said, pretty sure this is big enough. You know, just <laughs> even the crazy things about having the conversations. Or a woman would say um, she was raising money for a menstruation-related brand. And she's in a meeting, and one of the investors says, well, are the tampons, different-sized tampons, related to the fact that women have different-sized vaginas? Mm. And she says, uh, no, actually, no. Uh, they're related to the different volume of fluid that people right. have. Yeah. But just something that is, you know, fundamental if you're in the space is a new idea. I often had the experience where people would say to me, I was, you know, often presenting and raising money um, to men, as we talked about earlier, and they'd say, well, why my wife never mentioned this or my girlfriend or my whatever, you know, mm. I don't think desire, arousal and satisfaction could be a problem because she's never mentioned it. <laughs> you know, and I didn't say, you know, 
I'm sorry, sir, but it's probably not because you're such a crafted artisan. (laughs) You know, it's often because in my experience, and this is the truth, working on hundreds of businesses that affect women from the tops of their heads to the tips of their toes, Uh this broad area of sex is one of the few that people are very uncomfortable talking about. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about women in our target who were 35 plus. When I'm speaking to young people and college age students, they say, oh no, we talk about it all the time. But mm-hmm. something does change when you're in a long-term relationship, at least from all the research that we've done. Um, and the explanation that we have is that it's so personal and so private. And if I'm talking about something intimate, and let's say I'm sharing something with you, we're likely friends, which means we could be in a situation where you're out with the partner that I'm referring to, and I'm out with your partner, and all of a sudden it becomes um, very too close for comfort. So I always give the joke, you know, let's say my husband used to do this trick where he hung from the chandelier and did a few turns and then did this great dismount that was really great. And now he doesn't do it anymore. And I tell you that story. And then the next day we're at a movie or out to dinner. I've now shared something that feels so intimate and personal and almost inappropriate and and not fair to my partner. Mm. So I think there are a lot of good reasons why people aren't having those conversations, but right. it's certainly not because women aren't experiencing those problems. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's one thing to share with your friends or your close friends or whoever, um, but with your partner, I mean, it's it's interesting how we don't even talk to our spouses um, about you know the little ju- adjustments or you know it's it's just something that's somewhat taboo that's you know generational and passed from, you know, how uncomfortable our parents were with the topic. Um, You know, it's, it's interesting how it can be and should be more open in order to just, you know, have everyone's experience be that much more pleasurable than to, you know, just say, you know what, oh, this is what I got. This is what I, this is what I committed to. And, you know, know, it's interesting because when I talk about orgasmic leadership, I talk about the big problems that these businesses are solving. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, 43% of women have sexual concerns and difficulties at some point in their lives. A third of women experience symptoms of incontinence at some point. Um, 33% of women never experience an orgasm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there are uh, tw- uh, close to 50% of pregnancies every year in the U.S. are um, unwanted or mistimed. Mm. But going back to what you said about education, fewer than 50% of the states in the country require sex education. Oh, wow. And some subset of those don't even require it to be, literally, I'm not making this up, factually or medically accurate. Holy crap. Yeah, exactly. It is. So, you know, and in the, in the gap left by sex education and the ongoing problem that generations have had that they're uncomfortable talking to their children, yeah. you know, porn has in many cases become the de facto right. tool of education. Yeah. Um, and I'm not su- suggesting that all porn is bad or, or making, you know, some sort of political statement. What I am saying is I know from speaking with dozens of hundreds of women and doctors and doing a lot of research that porn as a sex education tool is changing expectations as to what people are supposed to be doing. Right. That makes total sense because especially now that it's, it's, it's 
it's essentially free, right? It's and, and easily accessible than it was back when I was growing up, you know, when I had to go rummaging through, you know, my dad's underwear club drawer to find a Betamax. You know? Oh like, my God. Yeah, you know? you're really dating yourself. <laughs> I'm dating myself. Yeah, of course. Betamax. I mean, but that's yeah. really far back. That's, that's literally what was happening when I was a te- you know, young teen boy and like, um, I mean, now they, they literally could just grab their phones. It, it's too, almost too accessible, you know, and, mm. and a pop-up, is, are you 18? Of course, you know, who's, what kid, 12-year-old, 13-year-old kid is going to say no? No, and then so, you know how to put in the right date. I, yeah. It's really amazing. I heard this thing on the news this morning. I don't know if you've seen this, Mm-mm. that there's a dramatic increase in teens having plastic surgery. Oh. And someone came up with the name of Instagram dysmorphia. Oh my God. (laughs) Meaning I want to look like I look in my pictures when I put the filters on. And so I'm going to do in real life what I need to do. So I look more like my Instagram pictures. Oh, that is so creepy. Yeah. I mean, it's scary. It was just. Yeah. I mean, I thought you had to be of a certain age, you know, 18 or whatever to, you know, go under the knife and have. Well, if you have parental consent. Yeah, you can. You can. Jeez. Ay, ay, ay. Which is a little bit, that's a, that's a whole, that's a whole nother topic. Yeah, uh, totally. You know, what, <laughs> there's just so much to talk about as it yeah. relates to this. I uh, know, there, there is. We need, we need a part two of this conversation. Yeah, I wanted to mention another, um, uh, share another story if we have time. Yeah, please. So a couple of years ago, just to show how long this problem has been going on, a couple of years ago, the cover of the New York Times ma- uh, magazine section was entitled, Unexcited, Is There a Pill for That? And it was basically talking about the products that were in development um, for some aspect of female arousal desire satisfaction, uh, talking a little bit about the development. And there was something in the article that never left me, and I've written about it and I've talked about it, that you know, in a clinical study, as I mentioned, you want to make sure that the product is working. But for some reason, in this particular space, in the world of female arousal desire, there was a concern that the product would work too well, lest there be, and now I'm doing the air quotes, you can't see me, sex craze binges of infidelity. Oh, man. With the underlying concern being that if women were sexually aroused, they would be running through the streets in heat. So it was one of the few categories where they didn't want the products to work too well. And I ended the article by saying, you know, men are walking around with four-hour erections. I'm not aware that there's panic in the streets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there should be more concern over that. And just as a way to show the dichotomy and the disparity between our comfort level with male sexuality and female sexuality. And that's way before you get into the very important conversations that we've been having about how fluid sexuality is across the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. I have a question for you, and you know, you're an expert here, so you you probably give me the best answer. Why <laughs> is it that in the U.S. we are so uptight relative to every other country in like Europe and Asia, and there's just why why such a drastic difference in how we handle and view and talk about it. You know, it it goes back hundreds of years and it's cultural and it's religious and it has to do with not having the language to discuss trauma and not having education um, and being somewhat puritanical when it comes to that. But you're a thousand percent right in almost every place in the world. um, Their comfort with uh, sex is much 
broader, yeah. more open. And I remember I was doing some work on this in France and I was doing some focus groups with um, consumers and they said in France, and you know, this is the world according to one person, but I thought it was an interesting expression. In France, sex is about love. In mm. the US, sex is about power. Right. And I think we're just so confused about our roles and wow. there's so much misinformation yeah. I, I think it's, you know, there are courses, there are year-long courses and PhDs given in this topic, but mm. it's people coming from very different backgrounds and not being educated themselves and really fearing. I, I think a lot of it has to do with this fear. Yeah. Listen, we know what happens. We know, we know what happens. There's also tons of research, which I think is as important as anything that I've stumbled across, which is that children who are taught about the right names for their body parts and right. their genitals and how they work and what functions they have are much more likely to report instances of trauma and abuse. Yes, absolutely. And if for no other reason than that, if you couldn't care less about female arousal, desire, and satisfaction, everybody cares about children. And yep. the idea that we would be arming our children and our children's children with the tools to protect themselves mm -hmm. and take ownership of their, you know, their own bodies and their own, their own person. That to me is huge. So yeah. if you eliminate everything else in the conversation, that's about as fundamentally important as it gets. Yeah. And, and I love that you even mentioned that because, you know, when my wife and I, you know, are raising our two young daughters, um, you know, they, they, they say those words and it's weird to the, uh, the older generations, you know, our parents who are baby, baby boomers, you're like, Oh wow, she's saying vagina or she's saying penis. And I'm like, well, that is for reason, you know, <laughs> that's what they're called. And there's, yeah. you know, all this, all the other terms. Yeah. If you speak to, I believe now, even most pediatricians and certainly most people in the world of sexuality is they're saying the pet names don't help. Mm-hmm. I mean, call, call your body parts whatever you want in your, yeah. your privacy of your own home or your own, you know, intimate settings. But when it comes to children, yeah. given what's going on, it seems really, really important. And so one of the reasons I still get so excited about this is because of all the entrepreneurs in this space, many of them, young women themselves, who are helping us create a language that will change the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. It reminds me of, you know, because I'm also in the uh, real estate investing space and, and, and talking about financial freedom and how the educational system is flawed as far as like teaching us and at a very young age how to manage money and how to invest money. And it's just not talked about at all. And this is in that space where it's like it's taboo to talk about right. sex. Taboo. Well, they do say that sex and money are the two things that yeah. we need the most education about and that we get the least. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's just, it just continues, right? There's no change or there's, if there is change, it's it's happening at a very small, lower level. Um, but yeah, it, this is, yeah, we could obviously <laughs> go down the rabbit hole on this. Um, exactly. Because there's so much. I mean, it's funny because when I first met you and you were on stage and you were just, you know, lighting everything on fire and, you know, lightning bolts were coming out of your mouth. Um, <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I said, oh man, I had to have Rachel on show. And, um, you know, we talked about, you were talking about a lot of cool things up there, you know, you know, obviously your book and, and, and your, your, car, your company Spark and your business partner was there as well. Um, and I'll mention all of this in the, the, the pre and the, 
the post role for this, um, all of your amazing um, accomplishments in, in your career so far. But um, so one of the things that remind, reminded me of, um, uh, I just remembered what the things you said to directly to me when I was standing and asking you a question. Um, I think I asked you about like, oh, successes. Like how do we, how do we gauge what? um you know if we've made it or oh, you know, yes, when I'm successful do you remember how when you, you remember what you said to me you I'll remind you if you <laughs> No I do remember but I Yeah it was I cool though Yeah yeah so you were you, do you want to talk about that a little bit and then I, well, I kind of want to go you paraphrase it <laughs> Yeah well you said you were basically saying that I I celebrate all the milestones whether the large ones or the small ones you know you, every little thing you celebrate and I you know that was you know, that really sticks with me. And, you know, and I still pass that along to people. But what was cool about that, you know, when I started to look into your story, um, I love your family dynamic. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that that, <laughs> right, comes from the root of it, right? Like, you, yeah. you, you talk about, you know, your, your family's love for movies. And I come from the same sort of background where that was our bond, right? My my parents didn't like to have those conversations, so they'd rather just, hey, let's sit in front of the boob tube and watch movies all day long, and that's how we bonded, you know. Well, so we all had those conversations because my mom was a therapist, so ah. when we weren't watching movies, we were having <laughs> emotional conversations about life and how we felt about things. That's great. That's great. So it sounds like your mom was sort of that person to have the deeper conversations, and uh, your dad was more of the, um, you know, hey, let's have some fun and entertain. And, and and life lessons will be taught through. Well, and he also was, he was such a role model in terms of how the, how the way he lived and how he interacted with people. So yeah. I don't think it was that cut and dry, but what was fundamental to growing up in my life, and, and I have one sister and sadly my dad passed away a few years ago and my mom is thankfully still with us, is we talk about how humor has been the theme. Mm. That I love that. You know, how you have to laugh. I mean, things get very hard and they get very scary and they get very sad. And somehow we've always used humor as a way to get us through uh, the darker times. Yeah. I love that. And and you you often quote movies. Um, well, I quote my dad as much as I quote <laughs> movies because, uh, you know, every time someone asks who was your, who inspired you? I always get yeah. the same answers. It's my dad and Oprah, but for very different reasons. Mm. What, what are some of those reasons? Well, you know, my dad just was so solid. He was consistent. He was loyal. He was kind. He was honest. He was brilliant. And he had this quality that you always felt like you had his total and complete attention. Mm. That whatever you were thinking about or worrying about was what he was thinking and worrying about. Mm -hmm. And really always someone who had your back. I mean, he was this incredibly warm, loving, amazing human being who also happened to be extremely hardworking and driven um, and supportive of everybody in his family. Mm. So that consistency and the and the comfort of always knowing someone was there. Yeah. Uh, and, and both my parents were that way, but we were talking you know, specifically about my dad. He traveled five days a week, yet he was incredibly present in my life, mm. always, oh, wow. and still is. I mean, there's not a day that my sister and I mm. don't quote, or one of our kids doesn't quote in the course of conversation, an expression that my dad would have. That's sweet. Um, and the Oprah piece, is a little less personal, although I would, you know, 
the closest I ever got was I, I did a, an interview on Oprah radio, but you know, my, I, I still have some time to get to her. Um, my, my perspective on Oprah, what I think is so brilliant about her is that not only that she transforms industries, not just the outgrowth of what she's done, which is extraordinary and the story that she comes from, but she's a master at knowing how to manage and balance context and content. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is she's just as comfortable working with young girls in South Africa, opening a school as she is going, you know, on a cruise with John Travolta for his 50th birthday. Mm -hmm. So her ability so that you feel like she's connecting with you, regardless of the situation, I think is a miraculous skill. And it's not that she doesn't vary a little bit, but she's, you know, in terms of her tone sometimes, you know, when she's being, you know, Oprah, you know, Oprah who grew up in poverty versus Oprah who lives like a queen. Yeah. She's just very accessible and you always feel like you're dealing directly with her, which mm -hmm. is why, you know, so many people feel like they have a relationship with her who have right. never met her. I mean, she got people yeah. to say on the show, I've never shared this with anybody. And they share the worst trauma that could ever befall someone mm -hmm. on TV in front of millions of people, but they feel like they're just having a conversation directly with her. Yeah. And yeah. the fact that she uses her, her power and her celebrity um, to support and, and grow things that she values, I think is really amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said. I mean, obviously, this is Oprah, um, right? And, but but what I love about what you're saying is, even whatever level you get to in success, um, being relatable, being approachable, being self-aware that you know, hey, the situation that I'm in or the person that I'm talking to, you know, you're you're still understanding, like you said, the context of where I am and who I'm talking to, and 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 putting myself in a position or not in a position, but speaking in a way that people can still, you know, have a conversation with a normal human being. Um, yeah. and, and I know you said you, you, you still sort of like a, a goal to, to get in uh, on her show or to talk to her. Um, but I'm sure you'll feel that right away. Like I, as soon as the star struck, you know, fog disappears, <laughs> like, this is just a regular um, human being that, you know, and that's how it is. And I'm sure when people talk to you as well, who are her fans or people that follow you and, and love you, you know, th th there's that, there's that sort of veil at first. And then they realize, Oh man, she's just, just rage Rachel she's a regular person and that's uh, very nice of you to say yeah Thank and you. no but you do have that or you have this command of the stage especially um which I love and I'm hoping to get you on my stage at some point um oh I forgot where are you located again are you I'm in the New York New Jersey area oh yeah great so good yeah you're de definitely coming by but you've been in so <laughs> you're in so many different businesses that yeah. I, I mean aren't you often in situations where you you literally almost feel like you're being punked and say did that person just say that out loud yeah like that yeah. thought went from their brain to their mouth out <laughs> yes it happens and um you and know, i'm I, sure i'm guilty of that too i'm not suggesting that i'm above that but i you know at least it, it's important to at least think about you know your environment yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I I don't say that I approach that the best way. I often walk away from a situation like that where someone says something and I'm, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, man, what, I, I don't know if I responded to that the correct way or I should have said this or, but um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, no, it's really 
cool to hear about your father and 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 how you feel about Oprah as well. I'm I'm curious what, <laughs> what did your dad do for a living? Um, he was a consultant also. Okay. So he um worked for back in the day. It was the big eight um accounting firms, and he was a consultant. And okay. Worked so for you... the same firm from the day he graduated from business school until the day he retired. Oh, wow. So would you say you got a lot of your entrepreneurial spirit from your father as well? I got a lot of my problem solving mm. from him. I think that the way he took a problem and broke it down and figured out the pieces and put it back together, I hope that if I got um, any of his professional skills, uh, that I got that one. Because right. that's he was just a masterful problem solver, not just professionally, um, but in our broader personal life. He was right. able to break things down and figure them out. And that's not a skill that a lot of people have. Lots of people make stuff more complicated before they figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're so right. Because I remember, you know, growing up and, and you know, situations where my dad or my mom and see how they handle the situation, you know, um, even as simple as like, leaving the house late to go to a party, you know, like I, you know, how do, how do you solve a problem where it's not really a problem or do you create more problems or how do you approach things? Um, you know, were, you know, part of my DNA from my parents and the fact that you were in situations at a very young age, watching your dad solve problems, um, at home. Um, you know, I'm, I'm imagining he was like a cool and calm cucumber, um, yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I, you know, and I love hearing that stuff because that's how I want to be for my daughters is like, okay, how do I handle this situation? Let me not revert to, you know, uh, what happened when I was growing up. Let me sort of model myself as someone that they can eventually, you know, when they're on a podcast, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, years later, they're talking to, or who knows what type of entertainment will have augmented reality. But um, yeah. Sh I want to be that example for them and, and have them speak of me the way you speak of your, your father. I would love that for my uh, children as well, too. I, I always say yeah. that if my kids respect me half as much as I've respected my parents, then I would have done um, a good job. Yeah. You, you said something funny about your son, how uh, you said something about, you know, the space that you're in. Did you? Oh, yeah. He <laughs> says, so when I started this, my kids were, you know, nine and, and 12. Um, I have an older daughter and a younger son, and I am I am very disciplined about never saying their names aloud whenever yeah. I'm speaking about good. this topic. Uh -huh. um, but at some point, as my son was growing up, he said, "You know, for the love of God, could you do a business, any business that isn't in the underwear?" <laughs> How old was he when he said that? You know, twelve, let's say. <laughs> but he, I quote him a lot in the book. He That's says great. a lot of funny things. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I don't, it, it sounds like for good reason, you don't mention their names. I, I'm, I'm guilty of always mentioning my wife and my daughter's names. Um, yeah, but you know, there's something to be said to give them their privacy. And, you know, especially my wife's very conscious of, you know, what's on social media, you know, because they don't have that choice. You know, they're not right. the ones saying, hey, I can, oh yeah, for, you know, you goes without saying, you know, a lot of people operate the way they want to operate and whatever they're comfortable with. But yeah, growing up, um, you know, can you imagine being a child of today and, you know, 15, 20 years later, they're like, how many photos do I have online? I mean, right. how, but you did what? You posted when I pooped where, you know? Right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So I, Rachel, I, 
really wish we could continue chatting here. Well, um, hopefully we'll get to uh, talk again. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad to hear we are close by each other because, yes. you know, we could we could meet up and, and have some dinner and, and drinks and um, sounds great. talk a little more. But um, yeah, so how can people reach? Oh, wait, wait, one little quick thing I wanted yeah. to mention to you, a little fun fact that I wanted to highlight. Uh, when Do you know what happens when you Google Vagipreneur? Have you I should, but I don't. Yeah, so <laughs> Google says, did you mean yogipreneur? Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> it's like, damn, you autocorrect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so eventually I know um, um, you can, I think through SEO and all this stuff, own that word. So when yes. you look it up, right, it's, it's your name at the tippy top there. Um, but um, yeah, I read a book, uh, Scott Belsky, The Messy Middle, the guy who um, created Behance. You know, uh -huh. creatives, and then sold it to Adobe for you know a trillion dollars or whatever. Right. <laughs> uh, he talks about how Behance, you know, um, their 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 goal as a startup was to, when you Google search that, you know, Beyonce wouldn't be the name that pops up. You know, did you? Right. Mean? So they eventually, I think, had a huge celebration when somebody Googled, you know, two years into it. You know, oh my God, it's us. You know, <laughs> but That's I imagine. Very funny. For, imagine well, for so. If you put in orgasmic leadership or you put in my name or yeah. uh, Spark Solutions for Growth, um, I come up. My email I always give to people is rbsherl, S-C-H-E-R-L, at Spark Solutions for Growth. Um, and that's or my name and all my social media tags are rbsherl. I'm pretty easy to find. Awesome. Yeah, so we'll we'll also put all of that in the show notes for anyone who wants to follow Rachel and to, you know, reach out to you as well. You know, appreciate it. I would love that. that. I always love hearing from people. Yeah, awesome, awesome. But thank you so much. I am eternally grateful for your time. Oh, thank you. And happy and healthy New Year to you. That was Rachel Braun Sherl. Ah, oh, man, she is so fun and witty and probably one of the, the smartest people that I've spoken to lately. And um, she was one of those people that when I was in pharma, um, would walk around the hallways and it was super intimidating to me um, uh, being a young designer and, and, and these executives that would walk around, just these, these power players um, that would walk the halls that eventually I got enough confidence to step up to you and, and ask to lunch and started to network with, with individuals like Rachel. And, um, you know, she's built so many cool businesses and um, have so many ideas that she's she's pushed out there. Um, really, truly, truly inspiring. Um, what I love also about Rachel's story is is how strong her family dynamic is. And um, you know, she she got into how her relationship was with her father, and that really pulled on my heartstrings and and reminded me how important a role we play in our kids' lives and how, you know, I impact my, my daughter's lives um, with everything that I do. And, um, you know, she and I spoke after and have been continuing to speak after and she shared a lot of really cool, um, very, very sort of private things with me. And, and Rachel, I appreciate you for doing that and for letting me into your circle. So folks, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, please keep in mind how strong and important family is and um you know family first before business and um keep building keep growing and i'll talk to you in the next episode well that's it for now folks if you'd like to stay in touch with the show you can contact me directly at eric at onairbrands.com that's eric e-r-i-k at onairbrands.com 
And if you aren't already subscribed to the show, you can find us on iTunes or any other podcast platform. Please rate us on iTunes as well. And always like, subscribe, and share this show on social media. We'd greatly appreciate you for it. And also, what do you want to hear on future shows? What challenges are you having? Any success stories that you'd like to share? We'd love to hear from you. If you're on the Anchor platform, you can leave us a voice message. We'd love to incorporate you and your voice on a future episode. So once again, folks, thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Circle podcast. Like, subscribe, and share. I am Eric Cabral. And don't forget, folks, your network is your net worth. Get in the circle. Yeah.